Welcome Black Hollywood Live fans, you are watching Justice is Served. Today we talk the killing of a gorilla at the Cincinnati Zoo, Bobby Schmurter's legal woes, and more. You are tuned in to Black Hollywood Lives. Justice is served. And be on some hot nigga. Welcome Black Hollywood Live fans, uh, you're watching Justice is Served. That is the viral hit from Bobby Schmurter, whose legal woes have uh, been piling up. Uh, we will discuss that case in a minute, but right now we have to talk about the case of the moment, which is this gorilla that was killed at the Cincinnati Zoo. Yes, this is an interesting case that took place where uh, a mother had apparently taken her son, a four-year-old son, to the Cincinnati Zoo, um, and it turned out the son got away from her, crawled underneath a three-foot three fence, threw the bushes and fell 15 feet into a moat at a gorilla enclosure in Cincinnati. Yeah, I mean, everyone's up in arms. They had to kill the gorilla, and so people have been talking about, you know, whether or not they should have shot this gorilla. A lot of animal rights activists have come out against this. And a lot of people have called for the parents to be held liable, and it looks like right now the cops are looking into the parents. Right, that's correct. They're um, currently looking at an investigation of the parents, and what they're going to focus on is what were the events that led up to the child getting away from the parent and, and ending up in this in this gorilla enclosure. Uh, in the 38 years that this exhibit has been open, they've never had an incident like this. Um, and so that leads to questions. Other parents have been able to manage bringing their kids to the zoo. Um, what made this situation different, and so they're going to be looking at, at the parents to see what happened beforehand. Yeah, we know in Ohio they could be facing child endangerment charges, and so do we know what the likelihood of conviction is on those charges? So basically they're going to be taking a look at whether there was negligence in in terms of taking care of, of this young um, this young boy. And they're also, it's possible it could actually get bumped up to a felony if certain other elements are present. That includes um, looking at the intent of the mother, as well as the degree of risk that there was to the to the young boy, um, the degree of risk of, of bodily harm or death. And, you know, given that this is the boy's mother, um, most likely they're probably you would think they wouldn't really find intent. Uh, hopefully, you know, yeah. she wants to take care of her boy um, and, and make sure that he's safe. Um, but in terms of degree of risk, I mean, falling into a moat with a 450-pound gorilla, yeah. um, there's a high degree of risk, I think we can all say. Yeah, and we know he had expressed interest to the parents or to his mom that he wanted to somehow go into the enclosure or play with the gorillas. So maybe she should have been watching him closer at that time. You know, it's it's funny. A lot of people have really, really strong opinions about this. Uh, you know, you have those that say it's hard to watch out for, you know, kids that are at that age, four, five, six. They run. They're fast. They get away uh, pretty quickly. It's not the parents' fault. Then you have those that say, um, you know, it's so unfortunate this was an endangered species. Now we have a dead gorilla. Um, what I would like to hear is also some conversation about, you know, what are the responsibilities of the zoo? do as well, um, because they have a duty of care to the patrons that are coming there, too. Yeah, I think that's important. And so right now, the cops aren't looking at the zoo because that's under the Department of Agriculture. Mm -hmm. But if a four-year-old is able to get into an enclosure with gorillas, to me already that raises the alarm flags that maybe the zoo is at fault for not having secured you know, that enclosure better. You know, it, 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 I, I agree 100%. Um, they will probably say that there was an enclosure, there were bushes uh, that the child had to get through before the moat um, even came into 
into play. So they're going to have to argue he's like the MacGyver four-year-old. So he's got <laughs> some sort of extra special sense that other four-year-olds wouldn't have of his age. You know, yeah, exactly. And what, I mean, one of the things that they would say is that, again, there have been no breaches at the gorilla exhibit in the past 30 year, 38 years, I believe, that it's been in operation. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they would claim that that serves as good evidence that they have um, maintained their duty of care to the patrons. Um, Someone else might say, you know, it's been reported that there actually have been other breaches. At the same at, zoo, right? At the same zoo. Yeah. So it didn't involve the gorilla enclosure, um, but there was um, an incident where, uh, let's see, actually a zookeeper actually lost an arm uh, when two polar bears escaped into um, a service area. So, you know, this this zoo has been out of compliance in previous years, but it did not in involve the gorilla exhibit. Well, yeah, it's definitely a tragedy all around. I know Michelle Gregg, the mother, had posted on Facebook that this was an accident. She had received, like, several threatening calls and, you know, messages. So hopefully this family is able to kind of move on from the traumatic experience and that zoo can find some sort of cure for not letting children get into these enclosures. And, you know, what a conflict it must be as well for the parents. Um, I think it, usually in situations where your child is in a, a situation of danger, a, a lot of families, you know, might use that as an excuse to, you know, file a lawsuit and, and, and yeah. kind of make some money off the situation. But for them, it's a little bit of a conflict because the zoo actually did shoot one of their prized possessions, one of the attractions at the zoo, in, in an effort to save the, uh, the child. So we'll, it's, it'll be interesting to see not only what happens to the parents um, in terms of the cops' investigation, but also what actions the parents do or do not take against the zoo. Yeah, and that's another debate that's raging is, you know, what, what is the right... Our, our zoos should they even be allowed to be around. Uh, we're having these animals penned up for entertainment and now we're having this kind of fallout. So we'll see, you know, we'll see if that changes anything. Right. So, but before we move on to our next story, we do have a great word from our sponsor, uh, Last Star. What if today was the last normal day of your life? Cassie Sullivan thought she knew what tomorrow would bring, but she was wrong. We were all wrong. The first wave took our power, killing half a million people. The second wave put that number to shame with tsunamis that destroyed everyone within 100 miles of the ocean. Goodbye, coastal cities. After the third wave, only the unlucky remained, survivors of a virus that left only 3% of the world still standing. In the fourth wave, the others became us, in human beings hiding behind human faces. At the dawn of the fifth wave, we had to choose, give up or get up and fight. But that was only a beginning. In these last days, Earth's remaining survivors will need to decide what's more important, saving ourselves or saving what makes us human. Rick Yancey's number one New York Times best-selling novel, The Fifth Wave, introduces us to a group of young people struggling to survive in the aftermath of a catastrophic alien invasion. Its sequels, The Infinite Sea and the newly released The Last Star, follow them through a series of battles and betrayals as they fight the ultimate war between life and death, hope and despair, love and hate. Entertainment Weekly calls the series remarkable, not to be missed under any circumstances, and urges fans to just read it. USA Today hails this as a modern sci-fi masterpiece, and best-selling author of The Passage, Justin Cronin, raves in his New York Times book review, calling the fifth wave wildly entertaining. The highly anticipated finale is here and will leave readers stunned. Learn more about the fifth wave series at fifthwavebooks.com. Again, that's fifthwavebooks.com. So there you have it, last star. I'm excited to, to read this. So moving on, we have Bobby Smyrna. 
And what we know about uh, his case is so far, members of GS9, uh, we had about, what, 13 guys were taken in uh, about two years ago um, based on a shooting of a 19-year-old. And now two of those guys have been sentenced, one for 98 years and one for 53 years. What's going on? What's with the long sentences? You know, that's uh, a good question. I, that's a good question. I mean, those are extremely long sentences, uh, 53 years, and as you mentioned, 98 years for the supposed, or I guess the convicted trigger man. Um, you know, that would make me really nervous if I were Bobby Shmurda, that, you know, in jail on the same, well, not the not the uh, assault charges, um, but he's at least involved in the consp- conspiracy aspect of the charges. That would make me really nervous about, you know, what my prospects were if I was Bobby Shmurda for what my, my sentence might be. Am I going to see something extremely excessive um, if, if I get convicted of conspiracy. And yeah, what I was concerned with, especially in the second case um, where Alex Crandon, 22 years old, was given 53 years for conspiracy. And these are serious charges. So I, I don't want to kind of say these charges are not serious and not, you know, do not warrant um, a large sentence. But something the judge said uh, at the end of this trial when, the guy, when um, Andrew had begged for leniency, he, or Alex had be- begged for leniency, he said that he had irrevocably given up his chance at a second shot to a good life. And I thought that was troublesome because I think jail should be rehabilitative. So I'm not saying this guy should get a year in jail, but maybe you give him 30 years, maybe you give him 35, 40 years. He comes out with at least some shot at being able, having been rehabilitated, Mm -hmm. being able to be a productive member of society. What do you think about that, that judge's sentiments. Yeah, you know, some people take different points of views. A lot of, well, that that jail and the criminal process has various um, methods to use. So some might say that, oh, the purpose of that is, to, you know, there's a rehabilitative aspect to it. Um, some say that you have to be really stringent in terms of being preventative in the first place. And that seems like the side that this judge that le- landed on, um, giving a 53-year sentence um, for Alex Crandon and giving a 98-year sentence for uh, Rashid Darasant, uh, it seems to me that he kind of wants to throw the book at these folks. They were charged with conspiracy, murder, attempted murder, but I think we've seen instances where people have gotten way less time for very severe murders. Um, you know, there was the case uh, that happened uh, long ago. I don't know Tupac had a lyric about Latasha Harlins, I believe her name was, um, who was shot by a, uh, a a clerk at one of these um, corner stores who didn't serve any time. For example, the the girl was walking away. She was shot in the back, um, and this and this clerk didn't get any time for murder. Um, so to go from one extreme to uh, ninety eight years, it's it's it does reflect a certain level of disparity uh, between how people are getting charged, um, sentenced, uh, and, and the question is is why. Yeah, and I, I think it's even underscored by the fact that Bobby Smurda has been in jail for two years without a trial. So they, they pick him up in December 2014, and they set his bail at $2 million. Now, when it comes to bail, you have the option to pay the bail, which upon acquittal you'll get back, or you can do a bond, which is about 10% of the bail, which you know you forfeit, you relinquish. However, so he's been able to produce a 10% bond, but he's still been denied bail. The judge wanted collateral. And here's the worst part of it. One of the most recent bail hearings, his aunt offered the collateral 
and he still was rejected. So what do you think is going on here? You know, that's a good question. It's hard to say. Um, the Guardian recently reported that even setting a case like this at a $2 million bail is very unusual, that it's about 10 times what you would expect for this case. Remember, he's actually not being charged with attempted murder. Bobby Shmurda, um is being, um, he's been charged with conspiracy and weapons charges um, and, and also reckless endangerment, um, but, but not that murder charge. So to even see that $2 million bail in the first place um, is a little bit unusual and certainly not standard if you look at other cases uh, that have similar charges. Yeah, it's unfortunate he's been in jail for two years. And it, it seems like he was someone trying to remove himself from this lifestyle. Though it looks like he may have been dragged back because we know that Epic, his record label, which has apparently been of no help um, <laughs> since this has begun, but it seems like prior to, they did try to get him away from New York and get him to L.A. to record and got him a place in Florida. Yeah, it's unfortunate when you see someone who clearly has the... Ex an experience in his in his history of you know seeing a lot of crime. Um, you know, I read that various friends when he was growing up were shot, were murdered. This was not something unusual to him, um, and so you see the notion of kind of murder and death uh, and crime reflected throughout his his lyrics. And so you have this this great opportunity to kind of step away and move into a new zone. You're making some money. You have a career that doesn't you know. You don't need to in involve yourself in, in violence to, to do well in it. Um, but he never really got a chance to even make it so far into that new zone because this happened. And, you know, there is a question, is it because he was coming into the limelight that, uh, that you know, that sparked the attention of the authorities um, to look into this gang even more so? Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate, but it does seem disparate. But the charges are serious. So I, I get why there are so many years but I also feel the judge's sentiment makes me think he didn't really look at the fact that these guys are young and that there should be some rehabilitative aspect to, to jail. Right, right. I mean, 22 years old, I, it's like, you know, you're not necessarily always making the right decisions at that age. You're easily influenced. Um, and I agree to say that you can't be rehabilitated or that you can't redirect your life at that young stage. Uh, it's, it's a bit difficult for me to, to accept that. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I don't know if the prospects are good for Bobby Smyrna. It looks like he faces uh, 25 years in the most serious charge. So, um, in the meantime, hopefully he gets out on bail at some point. Right, exactly. I mean, it's unfortunate, well, for him, uh, that his, his record label hasn't really... Stepped up to the plate. Right. Other record labels in the past have. Yeah, yeah, we've seen that before. Um, certainly with Snoop Dogg, um, I believe Rick Ross uh, as well. Um, but in this case, Epic seemed to take a, a step back. And I don't know whether that's because he hadn't yet proven himself as, you know, a cash cow moneymaker for, for that mm -hmm. record label. And they're kind of waiting to see even whether it's worth the investment in the first place. But that's uh, unfortunate for Bobby Shmurda that it happened uh in the first, at that timing for him yeah. in terms of his bail. And, but some wonder also if the lyrics are a little bit too close to the charges, because he's, he's rapping about guns, he's rapping about these sort of crimes. And so, but you really shouldn't be able to be prosecuted or held because of your lyrics. You know, and it, but it's interesting because that's not unusual. Prosecutors oftentimes will look at lyrics and try to use that and admit that as evidence in these in, in cases to show that the defendant um, did a certain crime. Um, interestingly enough, there was just a ruling in a New Jersey court that said, no, you can't uh, admit lyrics as evidence to demonstrate that a crime or that the defendant committed the crime unless there's a significant 
significant nexus uh, was the term that the judge used in that case. Um, but it's it's not unusual for pros prosecutors to, to go that route in any event and see see where it will take them. Yeah, I think uh, I think those lyrics might be hemming him up. And it's just interesting because the prosecutor himself, when he was arguing against uh, bail for Bobby Smurda, or you know against lowering bail, offered that he was worth half a million dollars. So if part of your argument for setting bail so high is that he's worth half a million dollars, how do you end up exceeding what you believe is worth to be? Mm -hmm. And so... Right. Well, that, again, begs the question as to wh why is it? Yeah. What, what was going on in this case? Why is the judge being, um, you know, this hard in terms of the sentencing, in terms of setting bail? Because if um, you really believed he was too much of a danger to the, to the community, you'd deny bail altogether. Right. So setting bail that's unreasonably high that effectively denies bail makes no sense. Mm -hmm. But uh, we will keep you guys updated on uh, on the Smyrna case as it unfolds. I believe the next tri the next date is set for September. So, and on to another case of uh, a shooting with involving a rapper. We have rapper Troy Ave, who was recently backstage at a TI concert. We know TI just already had his legal troubles, been out for a little bit, probably trying to avoid right. <laughs> that kind of controversy. Um, he ends up in a, a shootout. Right, right. Now, this is uh, not the first time a rapper um, uh, that violence has broken out at a, at a musical concert. We know this happened uh, with Chris Brown, I think, just about a year ago that um, a shooting broke out in, at the place. And so in this case, Troy Ave, who is a young rapper, um, was in the gre green room at this T.I. concert right before T.I. was supposed to go on. Um, he encountered an individual who apparently he has some sort of beef with or some sort of conflict with, and shots broke out at the venue. Um, and there's actual video. You can see Troy Ave limping out of the green room with his um, a shot to his leg. There's someone slumped over in a corner who's also been shot. Um, and you see Troy Ave open fire into the crowd. So he's now been charged with attempted murder uh, and criminal possession of a firearm. Yeah, I mean, what do you think the likelihood of, of conviction is? Because it seems like his lawyer is proffering a self-defense theory. We know that Troy Ave's bodyguard was shot, and we know that Troy Ave himself was shot, and the lawyer has offered he did not shoot his bodyguard, and he right. certainly didn't shoot himself. Right. This was someone that Troy Ave has grown up with, a dear friend of his, highly unlikely that he would have shot his own friend and so that that is helpful to his defense to be able to say that you know clearly I've been shot my friend has been shot I was defending myself um, what's troubling for Troy Ave is that the gun found in the car that transported him to the hospital actually matches the bullet that killed his friend so it seems possible that his friend might have been shot by friendly fire. It might have been Troy Av or Troy Av's gun at the very least um, that shot him. You know, we're not sure where the bullet came from that shot himself. I think prosecutors might argue that he shot himself to make it look like it was self-defense. Um, he would clearly try to argue otherwise. But that's a kind of a damning piece of evidence to know that the own bullet that killed your, your friend possibly came from your own gun. Yeah, absolutely. But um, it seems that they're not uh, dispositive yet, and so we have more ballistic tests that we're awaiting. So we'll uh, see what happens in that case. He's, he's been getting a lot of support from other rappers. I think uh, 50 Cent 
had a, a message for him on Instagram, as well as a couple of others showing showing their support and, and saying that the video that they see looks like self-defense to them. Yeah. Unfortunately, the, the video only shows Troy Ave opening fire, yeah. um, and so we can't see what happened before or after. Yeah, I was just glad T.I. wasn't involved. I was like, <laughs> dude, stay out of trouble. Stay Keep out of trouble. This, all of these guys need to stay on the straight yeah. and narrow path. You have a chance, take yeah. it. And speaking of 50 Cent, uh, it looks like he is going to be paying up big time to Rick Ross's ex. Yes. Now this is an interesting, an interesting case um, where Lestonia Leviston, Rick Ross's uh, baby's mother, has baby mama. I believe <laughs> is <that> correct. <laughs> has has sued uh, Fifty Cent, who loves who loves to keep his name in the news, um, for invasion of privacy and emotional distress after. 50 Cent uploaded um, a video of Lestonia and her ex-boyfriend. So it wasn't Rick Ross in the in the video, but it was her her having you know intimate relations or having sex <laughs> with her um, with her ex-boyfriend. And and 50 Cent is kind of interspersing his his comedic take on on what's going on and narrating as um, as they're having sex. And so. Um, as much fun as that was for him, now he owes some money to, to Lestonia Leviston to the tune of uh, $6 million, I believe is what they settled for. Yeah, it's definitely a lesson to celebrities that they do have this power of promotion that reaches other people, and that impact could eventually come back to bite you, depending on what you're sharing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so uh, it was actually, I guess, in some ways a victory for 50 Cent, who had filed uh, bankruptcy shortly after the judgment of $7 million. And so now if he pays this within 30 days, he gets to pay $6 million, but if he doesn't pay it within 30 days, the full seven million gets reinstated. Right. So he has at least a little bit of a discount uh, for for paying up front. So um, so hopefully he takes advantage of that opportunity and doesn't get stuck with a bigger bill uh, given his current financial woes. Yeah. Well, judging from Instagram, I think he's got the money. So <laughs> <laughs> he's been <laughs> pictures of stacks and stacks and stacks. So let's hope it's not too much of a bite out of his pocket. Um, now we move on to San Francisco. And this is a case where I said, finally, uh, we get the police chief Greg Sewer finally steps down. San Francisco had so many scandals in that police department. We had the two Twitter scandals, or the two uh, texting scandals, mm -hmm. uh, and now we also had the eight fatal shootings in, like, what, two years? Right, right. No, the it's it's really been an unfortunate uh, circumstance for the uh, com community of San Francisco. There have been eight fatal shootings uh, just in the past two years, all involving unarmed minorities. Um, so that's one thing that was a big concern to the community, was that why is it always first off, minorities that are involved in these mm. fatal shootings, and even worse, when you find out that these are unarmed individuals um, who are being taken down. Um, you know, and initially, uh, Chief, Police Chief Sir actually had the support of the mayor, uh, but it seems that after this this eighth shooting, the mayor kind of withdrew his support and felt that you know this is a, the last straw. We need to see some reorganization happen in the department. Yeah, I would have thought after the Mario Wood shooting, if we remember, this guy was shot what twenty plus times, and many of the officers said he was moving in their direction, but then cell phone video appeared to show or different video appeared to show the opposite, and so already mired in scandal, and then after the, the texting scandals, derogatory comments about mm -hmm. blacks and Latinos and people of the LGBT community, I really thought he would have been gone a long time ago. But it's nice to see that the mayor finally did something here. Right, and I think at least the good thing that's going to come from this is that there is going to be reform to that department. Um, prior to these deaths or prior to the removal of uh, this police chief, there was crisis intervention training in place for the police officers 
it was only voluntary, so people didn't have to take that training. Now it's going to be mandatory. Um, and they've bumped up that program going from eight hours, so it'll now involve 40 hours of training. So at least you're going to have officers that are better trained in, in the ways of how to handle these types of crises, hopefully in, in non-lethal ways. Um, and it's also going to cause them to revise their policy on the use of, of force as well. Yeah, and we know the DOJ is investigating. They started an investigation in February, and um, hopefully they have some policies that can help. I know they did that with Ferguson, and so um, hopefully that department gets really cleaned up. What I loved uh, hearing was from the president of the NAACP, so Amos Brown um, in San Francisco. And he refused to vilify Greg Sewer. He said Greg Sewer as a person, as a man, is a decent man. But the problem is a cultural systemic issue in that police department. And what we need to do is move collaboratively forward together to kind of stamp out that cultural, institutional sort of bias. Right. And it's, it's unfortunate that usually it takes a really tragic situation to cause people to kind of take action and, and reevaluate whether something is functioning. In this case, it took, you know, the death of a, of a woman um, who it seems wasn't posing any imminent harm at the time that she was killed. Yeah. Um, but the, the good outcome that comes from it is that, you know, this, um, this tragic incident does create the opportunity for the, um, for the department to revamp itself. So usually, you know, tragedy necessitates change, but it's unfortunate that the tragedy needs to take place in the first place. Place. Yeah, and, and you know the sergeant in that in the most recent case, he violated their prohibition against shooting someone in a mm -hmm. in a vehicle when they're posing no immediate threat to uh, the police or anyone in the community, and so it was just unfortunate to see protocol being broken and this happening over and over again in San Francisco. So hopefully they can move forward and. Uh, We'll do so collaboratively and, you know, maybe create a better police department. All right, and hopefully work in connection with the community to create a, a better relationship in the first place. Yeah. So, well, as we know, moving on, uh, California is like marijuana town. But we have not really been leading the charge anymore. You know, we've kind of fallen behind. And what I found interesting, I was kind of looking up this adult, what is it, the Adult Use of Marijuana Act that's going to be coming up in November um, to for vote about recreational use of marijuana. And what I discovered were there were several large racial disparities still in California regarding people getting charged with possession and possession with intent to distribute. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Right. So this report came out from the ACLU discussing disparities in arrests for marijuana um, showing that blacks are four times as likely as their white counterparts to be arrested for marijuana use. Um, and Latinos, I believe it was, uh, I'm not sure, was it 1.7? Oh, yeah, 1.6 times. Yeah. 1.6 times more likely um, than their white counterparts uh, to be arrested for marijuana. And even that number, um, it might be under understated because oftentimes um, Latinos are, are, are classified as whites on on. on police reports. Yeah. Um, so that's something that's been happening in, in California and actually across the nation. It's not unusual to see that um, black people tend to be arrested at a higher rate for drug use, even though, especially with marijuana, uh, use across the community, whether it's the black community, white community, or the Latino community, they tend to use at the same rates, um, but blacks are and Latinos are, are arrested more. Yeah, and what I didn't realize was how easy it was to bump this up to a felony. So essentially, it looks like in 2011, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, the then governor, made these infractions like almost a traffic ticket. You pay right. a fine, you, you go, you go. You don't have to even go to you know to jail or anything of that nature. But then, with intent to distribute, it bumps up to a felony, and the cops have discretion based on the amount of baggage or you know mm -hmm. you you might have 
several empty vials and they can then say that shows intent to distribute or have a large amount of cash. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think a lot of people might be unaware of exactly what the laws are. You know, people view California as uh, kind of this this land of, of, of it's a culture of, of weed and marijuana. And some people are actually surprised to find that it's not always legal that of course for for medical marijuana uses yes um, it's legal but in terms of recreational use um, having possession of an ounce or less uh, is a non-arrestable offense uh, but you can um, be ticketed for it and but having possession of more than one ounce um, is something that can be charged and um, is a serious charge. Um, so I think a lot of people might be unaware of that distinction as well mm-hmm. as as you mentioned, um, even if you don't uh, even if you don't have the one ounce amount, uh, you can still be charged with intent to distribute if they see things like cash, um, a scale, packaging materials, things that might indicate that you're actually packaging this and, and intending to sell it to another person. And looking at the incarceration rates and the arrest rates, it's troublesome. It's <laughs> are, we, are we live? Okay. <laughs> so look at the arrest rates. It's quite troublesome uh, because <laughs> technical difficulties. Here. Right. But yeah, looking at the arrest rate, it's really troublesome because it's such a subjective standard uh, as to whether or not you have the intent to distribute. Right. That's true. And not only is that an issue, but you also have the issue of. Um, is there, is this, does this kind of create a low-hanging fruit for police officers? Um, Police departments often get funding for taking, for making anti-drug efforts, and so they lose their funding if they're not showing arrests. So um, does this cause police officers to go out there and seek out more arrests um, because they're afraid of losing their funding in the first place? Um, And then you also have the issue of the fact that, you know, in terms of minority communities, the drug use tends to be outside versus in the um, white communities, the the use tends to be indoors. Um, So that also is going to impact how often people are getting arrested for the use of marijuana. Um, And then you also have the issue of whether you know, because it's now only, instead of being a misdemeanor, it's now an infraction, as you said, similar to a ticket. So does that cause police officers to, again, be more active in terms of their arrest because there's less paperwork involved, it shows that they're, they're, you know, working the streets, things of that nature. Um, And then how is this now impacting the community because because of that? Well, until I really read up on this, I wasn't really sure how I felt about the Adult Use of Marijuana Act, but now I'm actually in full favor of it, especially now because if it does pass, uh, people in prison or in jail right now as a result will be able to petition for release. Um, Those who have this on their record will be able to petition to have that expunged so they can find jobs and work. And if it's made recreational, those who have this past are able to actually enter the marijuana industry and open up dispensaries and open up grow houses and, you know, kind of contribute to, I guess, where they might have an expertise. Right. I mean, we know that arresting and and incarcerating individuals for these drug offenses has a significant impact on black communities and Latino uh, communities in a way that it hasn't affected others. You know, we already know that arrest rates are higher in black communities than they are in white communities. Um, We also know that uh, sentence Sentences for black offenders versus white offenders offenders are higher, and so what you have happen when they when they do get released, you know that impacts uh, depending on the the level of the uh, crime that impacts 
whether they're eligible for public housing, um, whether they're eligible for student loans, educational grants, um, you know, whether they're eligible for even certain jobs, uh, things of that nature that really impact their ability to reintegrate into society in the first place. Um, so that that disparity that you're seeing in arrest rates for blacks and Latinos, it doesn't only um, influence the, you know, the prison pipeline, but it also in, impacts communities upon their release. But I think it's great that um, the adult use of marijuana Act can potentially mitigate some of the effects that we've seen over the course of the years. Yeah, it's been awful. It's really been not a war on drugs, but a war on communities. And mm -hmm. I think that's what we've seen so far. But uh, I remain optimistic. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> hopefully uh, these stories don't bring us down too much. And we'll certainly have updates for you guys next week, Wednesday at 5 p.m. Uh, I'm Shaka Smith. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Shaka Strong. Hi, and I'm Yemi Abayami, and you can find me on Instagram at Ayemyems. And we'll see you guys next week. From executives Kevin Undergaro, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, and the entire BHL staff, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us, info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I am the official voice of Black Hollywood Live, Scipio, Instagram me, at KingXOBay. Thanks for tuning in. Hollywood, Hollywood redefined. redefined. The views expressed here are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.